that is more representative of Division Three football than Whitewater UMHB in front of 14,000 people. That's sort of a special outlier. We're a big tent in Division Three. In fact, we're a really large tent. We can accommodate the 14,213 and the 1,750. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman. You have a very forceful handshake, Mr. Coleman. And Greg Thomas. Thank you, Greg. That was interesting, too. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, your once-a-week podcast about the largest division of college football. This is podcast episode number 310, season 16, episode 10, for those of you like me who keep track of these things, or it's the podcast that dropped into your feed on September 12th of 2022. I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com and was crazy enough to fly to Milwaukee this weekend to see two football games on three hours of sleep. And I'm Greg Thomas. I write around the nation the column at D3Football.com and Pat, if you're going to get out on the road to see games this week, this was a great week to go do that. And you found yourself at an instant classic game. Yeah, wasn't that a great day of football on Saturday? I like this little alternate reality Division Three football season so much more where we've got top teams playing each other, other top teams, a lot of notable cases of that. Instead of, you know, say, talking about which power team beat some school 70 to nothing. Yeah, and there's not much that you can do as far like top 25 voters can't do a lot with that information. Top 25 voters probably maybe a little bit confused right now with the information we've received, but we've been receiving that data with a lot of entertainment value as well with a lot of matchups within the top 25. Yeah, I might go rant about this later, but the one thing that I'm disappointed about from this weekend is that you can't go back and watch any of these games, not any of these games, but that Whitewater, Mary Harden, Baylor game uh, archive, not available. I was lucky enough to have gotten to watch and kind of scrub through the final, I don't know, 10 to 12 minutes of the Wheaton Trinity game before that archive got taken offline. These are amazing games. Like folks, I'm, I'm looking at you. Is this my camera? This is my camera. Camera one, camera two, camera one, camera two. I'm looking at you guys at uh, UW Whitewater you have the power to put that archive back online on Blue Frame Technologies or Huddle or whatever that service is called these days and let people go watch that thing. That was a fantastic football game. One of the best Division Three football games I've ever seen. More people should see it. That is my appeal to Warhawkville. Do you think that those get taken off and unavailable for scouting purposes? Is that the the primary reason for that. That's my understanding. And it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, first off, I learned this, you know, I think I can say this now because St. Thomas isn't in division three anymore. Glenn Caruso talked to me about what they did at St. Thomas on game day is they would have screen recorders running on a whole bunch of games all the time. And, you know, when you get your scout for the playoffs, right, you are already possessed with a bunch of game video from your opponents who are you hiding from at this point you know you're gonna you're gonna exchange game video with Barry and then everybody in your conference is gonna get all of that game footage as well I don't know what is uh I don't know what's being hidden here that was just a fantastic afternoon of football that more people should see I'm gonna say this Greg I, I know you were about to say something but I say one more thing to me it was reminiscent of the day that I've talked about multiple times in 1998 where 98 football season, I was just covering Catholic university. I was doing radio broadcast stuff like that. Well, we had an off week. And so what I did was I went up to Chester, Pennsylvania to see like coming play Widener. These were two regionally ranked teams at the time. Regional rankings were all you had in 1998. And I'm blaming Google. And uh, Widener was up 13 to two and then pinned Lyco back on its own two, three yard line. And then Lyco went the length of the field, covered an onside kick, went down again and scored again and won that game walking off the field, like 15 to 13 or something ridiculous like that. It reminded me of that afternoon, except with like three times as many people in the stands. Yeah. I'm with you 100% games like Whitewater and UMHB Trinity Wheaton. Those are games that 
are good for everybody to see. They grow the game. These matchups are great, not just live and in the three hour window that they exist, but let people, we're going to talk about these games all week. People are talking about number one, being upset, upset, maybe depending on your point of view, people want to go back and rewatch those games. People who maybe are not even affiliated with Whitewater or UMHB. And those are the, those are the kinds of games that we want people new to division three or just discovering division three to see how good the football in this division is. Yeah, exactly. This is a selling point for division three football and we should have people be able to see it. I would love to go back to, I don't know, that troll who had zero followers who was ragging on division three football on Twitter last week and say, Hey, dumbass, watch this. You know that new sound you looking for? Yes, that is that is what you want to send people to get them hooked on Division Three football. There will be so much more about this game as we talk about it. I want to, before we go any further, uh, let people know that we'll be talking with Larry Harmon, the head coach of Mary Harden Baylor, on our Fast Five segment coming up in just a few minutes. Of course, I talked to him right as he was walking off the field for the first time after the defeat. So we'll talk about that. Uh, Greg, you talked about the <laughs> what the top 25 voters had to deal with this week. Here's how rare... These games are. We've been doing a D3Football.com top 25 since 2003, and this is just the sixth season in which the number one spot changed hands during the regular season. The nice thing is, you know, here's what I like about Division Three lately. Of those six times, four of them have come in the last seven years because at least we're getting a little bit more of that parity. Yeah, definitely more at the top for sure. We've definitely moved past the time where the list of title contenders is just Mount Union and maybe one other team. We've heard from coaches of the top programs about how difficult it has been for them to schedule division three games in large part because of how good they are. So it seemed, you know, almost inevitable that these teams that can't find other teams to play would start playing each other. We got that this week and in week one as well, we got matchups featuring number one versus number 11, number one versus number six, number four versus number five, number eight versus number nine. And we didn't have to wait all the way until after Thanksgiving to get these games. These games, like we said, are great for Division Three, and I hope they become a regular part of September's in the division. There's good coverage of the uh, Whitewater Mary Harden Baylor game that you can read on D3Football.com, and you can find some other stuff, obviously, other places. What I wanted to do was kind of get you some of the voices of the people involved. I mentioned we'll talk with Larry Harmon in a little bit, but... You know, last week in that spot, we talked with Kevin Bullis, kind of in a similar situation, having just come off the field, uh, you know, after his team lost at St. John's in week one, a completely different week for Kevin Bullis here in week two. No, Pat, you, you nailed that. It is the spectrum of emotion uh, from one end to the other. Um, we knew, though, even last week, I mean... It, the offense showed drives. They showed drives. But we stopped ourselves. And 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 um, that's the thing. I mean, you, you, you give the ball away, and you can't do that. Um, that. That is the toughest part. I think it's older when you're 57 years old to try to control your emotions. Um, for a bunch of 18 through 22-year-olds to control their emotions and to believe and trust what I say and what our coaches are saying and trust each other. That, that's what it is. It's trust, which that's the part that <clears throat> is really touching. It really hits to the core of what we do when you think that a, a group of human beings trusts you and, and trust what you say. And um, that's beautiful and trust each other. It's not just trusting your coaches, it's trusting each other. And, and uh, yeah, that's the emotions. And, and the, that challenge, last week's games challenges you in that manner. And, and this game, even the success of this game, it challenges you. you know, I think it's clear that Kevin Bullis and Whitewater, they thought that they sort of shot themselves in the foot last week against St. John's. And they did have a lot of uncharacteristic miscues. They cleaned those up. I wasn't sure that they had time to clean up enough of those things to win a game against UMHB. Clearly they did. They they played a very good game. None of the bad snaps or other things that they uh, suffered against St. John's. And end result, you know, they, they know what kind of program they are and how good they can be when they play well. 
and we saw it on Saturday. We joked last week, but of course, it is something that coaches have said from time immemorial, right? You make your biggest improvement as a team between week one and week two. Uh, we certainly saw that uh, in terms of Whitewater, and I talked with Evan Lewandowski, the starting quarterback for Whitewater, about it after the game. This is him, and then Tyler Holty, his uh, wide receiver, jumps in with the clarification. Uh, well, throughout the COVID and last year, I just kept on getting better, and you know that's the best feeling when you just keep on getting better, waiting for your opportunity, and... Yeah, last week didn't go well, but I fixed some stuff, and you know, this is one of the greatest feelings of my life. Definitely the best game ever, yeah. Is it tough being that patient? No. Uh, not when I have these guys in my O-line. Most boys are working every, every day. I think he's asking if it's tough being that patient to wait to get Oh, out patient? To no, not that either. <laughs> I'm ready to go. The backdrop is Lewandowski was the starting quarterback at UW-Lacrosse, another school in the same conference, the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, the WIAC, transferred to... Whitewater, then there was COVID season, then there was a season where he was a backup, and he was patient enough to work through that, work through last week's struggles, and lead a 99-yard touchdown drive to beat the number one team in the country. Yeah, and not just the 99-yard drive, but he was pretty sharp all day. Um, I think he went pretty deep into the game before he threw an incomplete pass. Both of those guys did, yeah. That is an accomplishment against uh, the Crusader defense in and of itself, and then just the just the metal to stare down 99 yards of field with what was it 212 left and march it down and that the throw to Tyler Coates at the end to win couldn't put it in a in a better place not the only top 10 game this was one of the best things about week 2 is like you could watch the entirety of both of these games one was at noon central the other was at 6 central 7 central i was at another game so greg tell us a little bit about the Wheaton and Trinity yeah, the other top 10 game from Saturday also lived up to expectations. It's number nine, Trinity defeated number eight, Wheaton, 17 to 16 in overtime. Both defenses were outstanding in this game, which is good news for Wheaton uh, as defenses where most of their new starters are playing. Trailing 10 to seven with just 122 left to play. New starting quarterback Will Bowers moved Wheaton from their own 12-yard line all the way to the Trinity 25-yard line to set up a Caleb Mary game-tying field goal as time expired. In the overtime, Trinity scored first and quickly with a legend Grigsby six-yard run. Wheaton's Giovanni Weeks answered that with a short touchdown run of his own, but Wheaton's point after try was blocked by Mac Douglas, and the Tigers win on a walk-off PAT block. We were talking last night about Wheaton and extra points and what an adventure it's kind of been. I felt like after the... You know, after the 42-yard field goal, that an extra point, which is basically a chip shot, may be less of an issue. But, you know, you, you mentioned blocked and Mac Douglas did get his hand on it, but it was a really low kick that I'm not sure was going to clear the line anyway. It was pretty low. Also in the first quarter of the game, Wheaton uh, missed a short field goal. He clanged one off the, off the upright in the first quarter. So place kicking, not super sound for Wheaton in the first game of the season. You know, the, the clutch field goal descended to overtime for sure, but then a couple of uh, missed kicks that might have been able to turn the game the other way. So if you're if you're Wheaton, what do you take away from this game? You know, they're Wheaton, they're not playing for moral victories. You know, they they're one of the top teams in Division Three, but there were a lot of important questions that I think got answered for the Thunder. Will Bowers looked really good in his debut against a great defense. Ben Bonga at receiver gave Trinity a lot of problems. And then uh, the Thunder defense with a whole slew of new starters, they surrendered just one touchdown in regulation to a really good offensive team. North Central, they're going to remain the favorites in the CCIW, but Wheaton is going to make the Cardinals earn it. Now is the time of the podcast where it would be good for us to recognize some of the people that have helped make this podcast happened over the course of the past 20 some months. These are the people who subscribe to and support d3sports.com through Patreon. Patreon, which is P A T R E O N.com, is a service which uh, allows people to subscribe to content creators like d3football.com is like this podcast, people who do other podcasts, people who create art. Uh, all sorts of things that I can't do, but I can create a podcast. And people support it by donating anywhere from you know $3 a month up to $50 a month. They get some bonus content, 
and that sort of thing as a thanks from us. And also, we are just super thankful that they're able to support what we do, and it helps us do a little bit more this time of year. Yeah, our Patreon subscribers really help fuel all of the D3Sports.com family of sites, but during football season, we see that support manifested in the regular cycle of coverage our readers see throughout each and every week. Features columns around the nation, on-site coverage on Saturdays, the live scoreboard on game day, all of it is uh, made possible by our Patreon supporters. If you enjoy D3Football.com and all of the coverage the site provides, consider joining our group of Patreon subscribers or support the site with a one-time donation. If you are already a Patreon subscriber, thank you. You can continue to support D3Football.com by spreading the word to your fellow fans at your next home game. So patreon.com slash d3sports is the place to support us with an ongoing monthly donation or go to d3sports.com slash help. And thanks to people who used each of those two things over the course of the past week to help support this podcast and the website. On-site game day coverage, you mentioned it. Uh, So I was in Whitewater on Saturday and then I also went to another game, which I had already been planning to go to just based on the fact that I had not seen one of those two teams played. It was a brand new stadium for me. And then Wisconsin Lutheran and Carroll announced this donut thing, this donut thing, the Glazer the Bowl. Golden Glazer. The Golden Glazer, which is was pretty pretty damn amazing and a whole lot of fun. So I'm at Robbie Stadium, which is uh, Wisconsin Lutheran's uh, stadium. It is off campus, uh, a little bit off campus and in a Milwaukee suburb. These schools, Wisconsin Lutheran in Milwaukee and Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin, they're about 14 miles apart. This is the first time that those two schools ever met in the sport of football. Uh, Wisconsin Lutheran's only had football for 22 years, something like that. It started after D3Football.com did. And it being, you know, a great night in terms of weather, it being two teams with lots of local connections, this stadium, which I, I estimated probably seats 1500, I'd have not looked to see what they, uh, what they officially listed at, but had that and more, I would have said somewhere between 1750 and 2000 people. And, you know, it's not as loud as Perkins stadium was 49 miles down the road, but just as much a college football atmosphere, just as much a Division Three football atmosphere. And, you know, the final outcome of the game was <clears throat> a lot to seven. But it was nonetheless an entertaining day and just kind of a cool thing to be in the building for. Yeah, you're there at the the first the first steps of a of a new football rivalry, a new football tradition. All of the rivalries that we sort of talk about over and over again, the, the Monon Bell, the Victory Bell, the Little Brass Bell, all of the bells. Uh, every one, every every one of those started with the first game, where you know nobody was maybe really sure how that tradition was going to take hold. And Division Three is full of long traditions, great traditions, and I hope that this is a new one that takes hold, and we can talk about the Golden Glazer when it comes around each and every year. Here's Mike Budaszewski after the game to talk about it a little more. Coach, to the victor go the donuts, huh? Absolutely. They're delicious. Tell us about uh, the Glazers Bowl. Big win for you guys today, 54-7 against uh, against Wisconsin Lutheran. It was awesome. Uh, Coach Tresky and I have been friends for a long time, and this is kind of two years in the making. Uh, we wanted to set up a crosstown rivalry uh, between Waukesha and Milwaukee, and uh, Quick Trip was gracious enough to sponsor it for us, and they got the most beautiful trophy in the world right here. And <laughs> our guys played hard. Wisconsin Lutheran played hard. Um, you know, we were executing pretty well today, but we got a lot of things that we got to clean up and work on. Great atmosphere here tonight. I mean, uh, standing room only and loud and, you know, legit fan base here tonight. Yeah, it was awesome. We had some of our parents were tailgating uh, starting at 1 o'clock this afternoon, and, and they had their tailgate set up. And uh, this is what, what Milwaukee Waukesha football is all about. And, and, uh, you know, we're going to have the same atmosphere next week when North Park comes in for another night game for us. I don't know, Greg, just a lot of fun. D3 Football tweeted a bunch of videos on Saturday. And the one of the final seconds of the game between Mary Harden Baylor and Whitewater and the one of the guys grabbing the donut trophy and the donuts got basically the same number of views and the same amount of engagement. It's kind of hilarious. People are excited about the Golden Glazer. They really, I mean, they really drummed up a following for this thing in a very short period of time. We're going to head back up 
the road to Whitewater, Wisconsin, and chat with Larry Harmon here in our Fast Five. See you all met. See you all met. See you all met. 28-24, Whitewater with the win against Mary Hart and Baylor. Coach, man, kind of a gut-wrenching final few minutes, and I know I'm asking you this, within the 10-minute cooling-off period, so to speak, so I understand if uh, maybe it's too soon to talk about such things. No, it's fine. So tell me, you know, well, how does it feel? It hurts. How do, how do you as coaches, how does the team, how do you hope the team takes this and channels this into the rest of the well, season? Well, I told the guys that the whole reason we lost the game was some of the decisions that I made as the head coach. I made an oath to them that it was never going to happen again and that this this game is going to make us or break us. So uh, we have a choice. We can re respond to this in a positive way or we can respond in a negative way and it's just going to go downhill. But uh, we got way too much leadership on this team to let it go the other way. I feel confident in that and we're just – we're gonna go back to the grindstone. I mean, this is a national championship quality game. Yep. It's 28-24. I mean, uh, I thought our kids played incredibly hard. Uh, I thought both sides did. We just made some mistakes at the critical times and credit Coach Bullets and his staff and his players. They made some great plays when they had to. And, uh, you know, it was just a great college football game. You're talking about mistakes and you're talking about calls that you guys made. I'm sure that people are going to be thinking about fourth and goal on the one, right? And sure. It, I mean, it looked like you had a great play call. The ball was right in the guy's hands. I'm not sure what else you guys could have done better. Well, we could have uh, maybe done something inside the tackle instead of trying to go outside. All of those things, you second-guess yourself. Sure. But, uh, you know, credit to them. They made the play. We didn't. And, and we got to do a great job as coaches uh, tomorrow on the film, uh, getting in there and really being critical of ourselves and, and uh, making sure that uh, – we have answers instead of uh, not. Going back to some of the bright sides of this game for you guys, especially in the first half, I thought uh, Alphonse Thomas looked fantastic. He was a really good, uh, does a really good job seeing the field ahead of him, making the right decisions. Am I seeing him correctly? Yeah, I thought you know Alphonse was a great player, and he, he's really good at making cuts. And you know I thought we were blocking well and, and that stuff. And um, you know we let him get up on us a little bit to where it kind of took Alfonso out of it, and we had to throw a little bit more, but. Uh, you know, Whitewater's got a great front seven, and and uh, you really gotta, you kind of gotta throw it to run it against them. You just can't sure. line up and knock them off the ball. You guys went to KJ Miller offensively a lot in the first half in the passing game, and then you know Brand Jordan got involved a little bit in the second half. Conscious decision, or you know, just trying to get KJ Miller established, or were they keying on well, him, taking I mean, him away? KJ Miller is just so special that you got to try to get him established early. No argument. And and get people really starting to key on him, and then and then when you do that, it it opens up everybody else. And Brandon was a was a beneficiary of that. And we got a lot of weapons on offense, and uh, we're not gonna change our philosophy. We're gonna keep doing what we do, and uh, we'll, we'll, we're we're gonna get better at goal line offense and goal line defense and. Uh, I didn't think we were, there were some key situational football one-on-one -on -one stuff that we were not very good at. And what a great learning environment to get it in and, and uh, we'll get it fixed on film tomorrow. Let's talk about environment just a little bit uh, also. I mean, you guys were here, of course, just like three weeks ago, right? In football time or yep. in, in game time. Feels like uh, it, yeah. But you know, 14,000 fans here today, an incredible atmosphere. Does that, did, does that? Sure, that's just yeah. awesome. I mean, yeah. that's why you want these games and, you know, not only did they have 14,000, but Wisconsin Whitewater fans? Yeah, they're, they, they, they really, got a lot to say. They really know football. They I mean, do. they really understand the game and they really appreciate all the, the X's and O's and the adjustments made. And uh, you can really you can really appreciate fans like theirs. Things looked, uh, I don't know, say chippy is the word people use, but a little uh, hotly contested on the field. How about that? Yeah, you know, there's there's emotion. You know, we're defending national champs and, yeah. and, and we beat them on their home court and they coming off a loss against against St. John's and all of that stuff. So both teams were trying to to, to establish who's going to be the, the most physical dominating team. And, uh, you know, I, I don't like it when we get chippy, kind of fake bravado, you know, and uh, so that's something that we're going to address. You talked about it a couple of minutes ago. You are liking these games. You've scheduled two really big games to start the season. And you and I talked about this back in, whatever, February, March, yeah. April, something like that. Can I assume that through the first two weeks of the season, your philosophy isn't changing going forward, right? Not at all. No, we need to find out where we're at. Our kids need to know what it's like to play in a championship caliber football game early. We were probably thinking we're pretty good. And uh, we're not going to get beaten, all that stuff. And now they realize, man, we better come out and work every single day. Uh, I didn't think we had a great week of work this past week. The hardest thing when you've won a lot 
is complacency. Sometimes you just need to get hit right square in the nose to, to wake up and realize that we need to be more locked in and we need to work hard and start doing all the little things right all the time because teams like this, just one mistake costs you. I think when you have as many offensive options as UMHB does, it's easy to get too creative in that short yardage situation. After two runs up the middle were stopped inside the one, UMHB tried to sweep it in with KJ Miller and then threw for it on fourth down. It took great plays by UWW to stop both of those plays, but I have to think it's incredibly hard to stop Afonso Thomas between the tackles for one yard two more times. And I assume that's what Coach Harmon was talking about, right, when he when he was talking about running inside the tackles, right? Thomas, uh, maybe Cormier. I don't know. Cormier didn't look particularly sharp on Saturday in his carries. And I can see maybe not going with him in the clutch. He's the bigger guy, the guy who maybe you might use on the goal line, and you probably bring in a different package, right, than a, just a single back thing. I just think Cormier, his game, and Whitewater's defensive line were not a particularly good match. Let's just put it that way. But... You know, before you write off Mary Harden-Baylor at any point this season, I'm just going to tell you, Brandon Jordan was very vocal with his teammates on the way off the field after the game, after the handshakes, after conversation, uh, you know, with coaching players, a short huddle on the sidelines over there. Then everybody's walking off. They are all angry. Jordan is like, I'm paraphrasing, it was like, I told you guys they were going to be tough, you know, that sort of thing. And you didn't listen. These guys are going to be fired the F up. And I kind of feel bad for Southwestern this week. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's going to be probably a tough week for Southwestern. Maybe a tough week for the rest of the division, the rest of the way. Because UMHB, that is a team that I think, you know, they're every bit the title contender that they were before this game, except now they have everybody's attention. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to favorite quarterback Bryce Jackson. You're not going to look at Jackson's numbers and immediately understand why this is my game ball, but Jackson got the job done for the Cougars, leading two touchdown drives in a span of about three minutes to lift Averett past its former conference rival, Christopher Newport, 24-20 on Saturday. CNU had taken a 20-10 lead with 3.44 to play after a 40-yard field goal from Ryan Castle, and that's when Jackson had the game placed in his hands as he drove the team 62 yards in 12 plays, all of them passes, finding Tavian Goffigan for a 4-yard score to cut the lead to 20-17. Jackson hit Goffigan three different times on that drive for a total of 42 receiving yards. Then with a buck 37 to play, Averett recovers the onside kick, of course. Jackson and the offense are back out there, and this time, you know, ripping off big chunks. Jackson finds Goffigan for gains of 11 and 16 yards. And then Jackson hits Marquise Woodruff for the 26-yard game-winning touchdown pass with 42 seconds left. Averett holds on to win this game 24-20. Bryce Jackson had 115 of his 216 yards for the day in that one three-minute span. And that's why he gets my game ball. The 60-minute game, Pat. Uh, in this case, really, really good three minutes. My game ball is going to go to Wisconsin Whitewater senior linebacker Shane McGrail. McGrail led the Warhawks with nine tackles, but none bigger than the two tackles he made in the crucial goal line stand that we talked about earlier. McGrail stood Afonso Thomas up between the tackles on second and goal from well inside the one-yard line, and then he shed a block outside of the hash marks to stop K.J. Miller from being able to cross the goal line on third down. Those two plays not only saved Whitewater's chances in Saturday's game, but may have saved their season. That's what that 180 degree emotional switch, right? Totally different outlook right now for Whitewater players, fans, coaches, etc. That's not my stat. Also, not going to be my stat. Not my stat. But that may be the most incredible stat. For my stat of the week, I'm going to pull a page from the Greg Thomas handbook. All right. This is podcast 310. When Hilbert took the field on Saturday for its first ever football game, it was just 310 days from the day they announced they were starting football to the day they played their opening game. That's uh, that's less than a year. I think you know that. And that's not typically how that goes. It's not always advisable. Usually that's something you announce closer to two years out. And maybe that compressed 
time span, not having that first recruiting class in for a, uh, you know, a whole redshirt season of practice. Maybe that showed on Saturday. Dennison came to Hamburg, New York, and took it to Hilbert, defeating the Hawks 63-zip. Yeah, you know, Hilbert coming on a little bit late. I think their schedule indicates a little bit of that, having to scramble to find games. So Dennison, Hilbert's going to get a lot of North Coast teams who had to pick up some extra games this year at the last minute. That North Coast Athletic Conference is dipping real heavily into that Hilbert strength of schedule. It really is. (laughs) My stat of the week, I'm going to go to Oberlin, Ohio, where Alvernia outlasted a late charge from the Yeoman to win 38 to 35. E.J. Lee led the Golden Wolves with 148 rushing yards, which is not my stat, including a 48-yard scoring run that sealed the game in the fourth quarter. Also not going to be my stat. The win by Alvernia snaps a 16-game losing streak dating back to October 12, 2019. That's a total of 1,065 days between wins for Alvernia, and that is my stat of the week. And congratulations to Coach Steve Azanisi on his first head coaching win. Yeah, and if that name E.J. Lee sounds familiar, you aren't crazy. Uh, That's the guy who played running back for Wesley. So I'm glad to see some of those Wolverines are still playing. A couple of Wesley connections there, yeah? That's right. As an easy former longtime assistant coach, went on to coach at Delaware State. Now the head coach at Alvernia. I'm a real wild one. And what's fun in the one? What's fun in the one? How about high-scoring games? I'm going to mention Nichols in this spot for the second week in a row. And, and this time, that's because they defeated Dean on Friday night, 71-55. to I'm going to turn it actually over to Nichols coach Dale Olmstead for more. You know, I don't think I've ever been a part of a, you know, regulation game with, with uh, so much so many points being, uh, you know, back and forth, you know, in special teams, too. It was, uh, it was a great team effort. You know, you need to clean up a lot of things. You know, obviously, sometimes it's not great to have that many points. But, um, you know, certainly I'm with two, two of the young men here that perform very well. I know, and honestly, a game like today, we could probably have 10 guys up here. I thought the, uh, you know, offensive line was impressive. The, the group of receivers, um, you know, maybe some of the offensive stats won't pop out. But, you know, I know Axe had a great game. He put it all on the line. Um, and honestly, probably some of his most impressive runs were the two and three yards when, when we needed it. And uh, he did a great job. You know, and Dean, give credit to Dean. I thought we would put him away two or three times. They always came back. Um, you know, but again, you know, it was, uh, it was a great win. Anytime, everyone's a great win. So 2-0 heading, heading to Coast Guy. We'll enjoy the night and, and be ready to get back to work. Nichols scored seven of its touchdowns on the ground, two through the air, and yes, had a safety to get to its 71 points. So many safeties again this week. Safety dance all over the place. Kane seven, Utica four was a score at one point. Lake Forest is unimpressed by two safeties in a game. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Greg, what's fun in the one from your view? Anna Maria had fun in their season opener against UMass Dartmouth. The Amcats picked up a 63-48 to win behind a huge game from quarterback Alex Cohen. Cohen threw for six touchdowns and ran for two more. Mass Dartmouth won nine games last year, so this is a notable win for Anna Maria and the Eastern Collegiate Football Conference. Amcats, as you all should know, is an acronym. It stands for Anna Maria College Athletic Teams. Something else that might be fun in the one. This is actual hard news here. Uh, Hoosville's Dave McHugh is chasing this. At least one New England team is applying to NCAA Division II. No, this isn't Utica. I don't think I wouldn't consider Utica New England. We already know Utica wants to move out of Division III and go in that direction. And now it's looking like we are losing Nichols to Division II as well. Nichols and Utica, from everything that we've heard, and we've heard this from multiple sources, applying to the Northeast 10 Conference and, you know, that is then they would be in Division two. So um, if that's a thing that happens, then you you may maybe you've even heard that here first. I don't know. And then the CCC is like, I need more football programs and automatic bids. This automatic bid thing is going to continue to be a carousel, continue to be a, uh, you know, a work in progress. A fluid situation, Pat. A fluid indeed. Greg, what's new in the two? Quite literally new to the two is Allegheny, who re-entered the President's Athletic Conference with a 34-6 win over Teal on Saturday. Allegheny, of course, a longtime member of the North Coast Athletic Conference. They have returned to the geographically friendlier PAC for the 2022 season. PAC play gets a little bit tougher for the Gators next week as they travel to Westminster. You heard him say Teal. Teal is spelled T-H-I-E-L. 
Teal College in Greenville, Pennsylvania. The President's Athletic Conference schools in Western Pennsylvania as well as West Virginia and then an affiliate member in football in Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. What's new in the two for me is not really knowing what's going on at Hobart. I'm talking about David Cruson, a quarterback who started all 11 games for the Statesman last season, and then they, he started the season opener this year, was just a big old DNP on Saturday in Hobart's 24-13 loss at Morrisville State. Even without him, Hobart dominated on the stat sheet, but Morrisville scored on two fumble returns, essentially negating a 349-167 to 167 advantage in total yards for Hobart. We reached out to Hobart to find out more and have not heard back, but it doesn't appear that Cruson was even at the game unless he was tweeting Pitt, Tennessee highlights from the sidelines because he was doing that with about 25 minutes left in the game. Pitt, Tennessee was a good game. That's my understanding. There was something about being game and there's something about being ballsy for Rowan this past weekend as well as the profs were caught using their game film like during the game, allegedly bringing like a tablet down to the sidelines to get a look at video between drives. That is a huge no-no and the game was paused for a couple minutes in the third quarter to address it. Then the teams got chippy because of this during the post-game handshake. Coaches and players jawing at each other, whistles blowing and everything. So like that may be new, but the rule is not. And here's the rule. Television replay or monitor equipment is prohibited at the sidelines, press box, or other locations within the playing enclosure for coaching purposes during the game. Motion pictures, any type of film, facsimile machines, videotapes, photographs, writing, transmission machines, and computers may not be used by coaches or for coaching purposes anytime during the game or between periods. Computers, tablets, etc. are not allowed in the coaching booth. And any intimidating words, actions directed at players, coaches, or spectators will not be tolerated as grounds for removal from the site of competition. Doesn't seem to be a lot of gray area in that one, Pat. So we'll see what, if anything, comes of all of that. What do you see in the three? One of the things I loved in the three this weekend was the Battle of Alabama. The battle for the Wesley Cup had seven lead changes finished with Huntington winning 38-35. So Huntington running back Kahari McReynolds ran for three touchdowns, one in the first quarter, one in the second, and one in the fourth, and his running prowess on Saturday helped set up the game-winning score as Landon Cotney found Kyler Chaney wide open in the end zone to get the lead with 69 seconds left. Seriously, so if you have a minute, go find the broadcast archive of this game. Try to drag that stretch internet uh, slider as close to the three-hour, eight-minute mark as possible. It's not easy. But those linebackers for Birmingham Southern just freeze on the play action because McReynolds has had such a fantastic day. I love a good rivalry game. Uh, and let's be honest, Alabama's two teams should be playing each other every year. And, you know, at least it's an archive that's available. Thankfully, they do. That's a good, it's a really good rivalry game. What do you see in the three? I think I see the possibility for some new playoff hosts uh, with UMHB's loss. Teams like Trinity or Randolph Macon, if they can run the table, are going to have the opportunity to host at least a couple of rounds in the postseason. Harden Simmons, of course, could play their way into a hosting situation if they can replicate Whitewater's result uh, when they host the Crusaders on September 24th. Shelton Stadium, Abilene, Texas. The north side of Abilene. That's what the four by four's for, son. That's what the four by four's for. Greg, what's the score in the four? For the second straight week, Hope came from behind, did notch a quality win, this time 33-24 to over visiting Coe. The Flying Dutchman did it with defense, intercepting Cohawk quarterbacks six times. This win sets up an intriguing Region 4 matchup next week at 2-0 Mount St. Joseph. It's like they're playing their way into perhaps getting serious considerations into other receiving votes, right? The score of the four I was looking at was 24 to 23. That was your final score at Rose Holman after the host fighting engineers were unable to hold on to a 23 to three lead. Rose Holman got out to that advantage with a combination of tempo, like some good work in the Wildcat, a couple of big pass breakups and a tipped ball interception. But Trine looked much better in the second half holding Rose Holman under 10 yards on each of its next four drives and trying brought in running quarterback Cole Alexander. He's six foot two, 220 pounds guy. That guy ran for a touchdown. And then Alex price, who was the starter settled down after a bit of a shaky start to run for the go ahead score on a third and 11 from the 17 yard line. 
trying off to a nice start as well at two and zero, and they may well be in the mix in the MIAA. You know, everybody except Adrian is two and zero in the MIAA. Pat, who's looking alive in the five? Mumbo number five. Looking alive in the five, Buta Vista. Pronunciation 101. Buta Vista. Monon Belt. Buta Vista. Gallardi. Buellenberg. Worcester. Buta Vista. Buna, not Buena. They sure looked lively on Saturday once they caught a bit of a break. Lakeland freshman running back Jatron Beverly had rolled up 343 yards on 17 carries in just his second collegiate game, scoring five touchdowns, doing his best Desmond Eddy impression. I understand the crickets, but Desmond Eddy was the uh, stud running back for Lakeland in 2017, and he had the school record for rushing at 308 yards or something like that. So those five touchdowns help stake the Muskies to a 34-10 lead. But Beverly was slow to get up after that fifth touchdown. They let him call it quits for the day. Pads off and everything. From there, BVU comes to life. They score the final 31 points of the game to win, including bouncing back from a field-shifting 63-yard punt to get an 82-yard touchdown pass from Zach Herrera to Andre Booker. Coach Grant Mollring's postgame quote says, and I quote, Defensively, we didn't play well against the run, and in particular, one scheme. I wonder what scheme that was. How about any scheme that had Jatron Beverly in it? We were able to slow them down in the fourth quarter, which led to an incredible comeback. The the one-back Beverly scheme? <laughs> right. That's the that's not even 10 personnel. That's just Beverly personnel. Who's alive in the five? I think Wartburg might be flying a little under the radar in the five. The Knights shut out UW Stout on Saturday. That's a UW Stout team that was receiving top 25 votes. I wrote that before I realized that (laughs) UW Stout is still receiving a top 25 vote. Still has one. Three quarters of the WIAC is getting top 25 votes. Owen Grover had two interceptions to go with the one he had in the very late game in week one at Monmouth. Wartburg and Central look like they might be on a collision course for the American Rivers Conference title. American Rivers Conference, the conference formerly known as the Iowa Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, because now they are primarily Iowa and also Nebraska Wesleyan. Oddly enough, they're Nebraska. Greg, what's in the mix in the six? Out in the six, we had a pair of wild finishes in the Skyac on Saturday night. Cal Lutheran went for two and was not able to convert, allowing Chapman to hang on to a 42-41 to win. And in my first live game action of the season, Pomona Pitzer's Skylar Noble found Sander Wimmer in the front corner of the end zone with no time left. The ensuing extra point was good, giving the Sage Hens a 21 to 20 win over Redlands. That is the Sage Hens first win over the Bulldogs since 2004. These teams will all re-rack and play again later this fall as these were non-conference games this weekend. I'm thinking about Pomona Pitzer 2004. I mean, 1998, 99, maybe even into 2000 or 2001, right? Pomona Pitzer kind of lifted itself out of the Skyac schedule, actually cost the Skyac a chance at an automatic bid for several years because Pomona Pitzer refused to play conference ball. And then I kind of forgot that they beat Redlands in 2004. Sage Hens are back. What can we say? The Sage Hens are on a decent little run here. They ended last season going across the street and beating cms in the sixth street rivalry game pretty good claremont mud scripts team and then this season they're off to a 2-0 start with that win over redlands what's in this mix in the six for me why i teased this about uh two and a half minutes ago 62.5 percent of the WIAC is in the top 25 75 percent of them getting votes five teams ranked right never had five teams ranked from the same conference i I'm not sure about UW Platteville, where they are right now. UW Platteville obviously beat Bethel. It's Jaron Rosty less Bethel. Like, if Rosty doesn't play in week four against St. John's, I don't know what chance Bethel really has against the Johnnies right now. I just don't give as much weight to this game, which is nonetheless, even then, a 10 7 win for Platteville at home against Bethel. And I know I'm going to have uh, Platteville people beating down my door, but I do indeed know that uh, you know Bethel wasn't the only one who didn't have its uh, its number one quarterback on Saturday. But Nathan Shackelford, I mean, the guy who played for Platteville against Bethel on Saturday, I mean, that guy was 18 for 23 against Michigan Tech in week one. So I'm not, uh, I'm not putting that on the same level. Last week, we played who had it worse. This week, 
Who had it better? Who had the better week in week two, the Mac or the MIAA? So let's break it down here. Break it down for me, fellas. The Mac went seven and one on the week. The one being a conference, a, a Mac on Mac game between uh, Lycoming and Lebanon Valley. Lycoming won 21 to 20. I believe that's a non-conference Mac game. The MIAA went seven and zero this week, ran the table, and so who had a better week, the Mac or the MIAA? Pat, I am going to say that the MIAA had the better week here, even though maybe their competition wasn't quite as good. Although they did notch a nice win against Co. and another nice win against Rose Holman, I think that's a decent win. That is that is a nice win as well. In Region Four, I think that there is an opportunity for the MIAA to stack up a whole bunch of non-conference wins and rank a lot of teams when we get to regional rankings time. The HCAC struggling to pick up wins. The North Coast Athletic Conference not off to a really great start in 2022 either. The OAC not quite their strong self in the non-conference season either. So you've got a chance here for the MIAA to really roll up a lot of wins, keep those win percentages high, and have enough teams ranked in the regional rankings that a team that goes 9-1 and one out of the MIA could have a very good at-large chance. Diving into the top 25 for a second, too. We talked about what a difficult task it was for top 25 voters to kind of suss out everything over the course of this week. And I was just going to pull up the voting results here. So the top five teams, North Central, St. John's, Mount Union, Whitewater, and Mary Harden, Baylor... Mary Harden Baylor has a vote as low as number nine, which is egregious, if you ask me, as high as number three. So 14 first place votes for North Central, seven for St. John's, four for Mount Union. Those are the three things indicated in parentheses on the top 25 poll. And then just to look at quickly at where the number two votes are going, eight of those go to Mount Union, seven go to St. John's, six go to North Central, three to Whitewater, and one to Harden-Simmons. Some of that uh, obviously has an opportunity to be impacted soon. St. John's is the consensus number three, although they are number two in the in the in the uh, tally, of course. They have ten number three votes. Five of them go to Mount Union, five to Whitewater, three to Mary Harden Baylor, and two to North Central. Everybody has Whitewater in their top six, which helps keep them where they are. Twenty-four of the twenty-five voters have St. John's in their top three, and one person has them fifth. Uh, at the number four votes go primarily to Whitewater, 13 of them. 13 of the number five votes go to Mary Harden Baylor. It's a pretty even spread. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you got this information from us last week, and maybe you had a good idea who was going to be number one once losses happen this week. Yeah, I think I was maybe a little bit surprised uh, to see North Central with the majority of number one votes. I Yeah, my, I thought it would uh, be more evenly split. Yeah, I, I thought it would be more evenly split amongst these three teams and maybe even somebody uh, taking, well, no, nobody would take a flyer on UMHB still, but I thought it would be the the votes would be a little bit more split. I thought we might see a situation where maybe the number one team didn't have the most number one votes. That would be a really odd thing to see in the D3football.com top 25. But possible. I went with St. John's. I'm one of the seven St. John's voters. They are... The team that beat the team that beat the team, right? What's that make us? Absolutely nothing. I thought that was worth something. And I think their second win against River Falls also pushes them. I had them leap over North Central on my ballot this week from three up to number one. I am a Mount Union voter. I'm one of the four. Here's my case for Mount Union, basically. Many times, almost every year, this time of year, after the second week of votes, you don't have a lot of data in season to really make that judgment call on, right? And so, obviously, we do have it this year, right? I mean, no doubt UW-Whitewater has had uh, has an amazing win under its belt. Uh, St. John's has an amazing win under its belt. And then, you know, kind of a close win against a team that is in that third quintile of the top 25. You can look up quintile at home if you need to know what that is, folks uh, listening to this podcast. That's the fourth quintile, isn't it? I I can say the word quintile, but I don't know what the F a quintile actually is. My point being, I just, for me, 
I have thought, and I said this on the podcast last week, I thought Mountain Union is going to be really, really good this year. And yes, no, in fact, they have not had a quality opponent this year. They may not have a national caliber quality opponent until week 13, week 13 being the round of the national quarterfinals. But I think right now, from what I have seen, I'm comfortable calling Mount Union the uh, number one team in the country. And my my vote is pretty malleable right now. A North Central win over Wheaton in some relative convincing matter could convince me. Mount Union not looking good could convince me to switch things around, that sort of thing. It's not like this is all set in stone. I am not the kind of person who locks my number one in on a team until they lose necessarily. So I guess we'll see. I think it would be curious to see how many of our voters who are voting for North Central or St. John's or even Mount Union would favor those teams in a game against Whitewater or Mary Harden Baylor, even though the losses kind of dictate where you have to vote right now. Interesting, right? I mean, you know, so like in the basketball world, it's tough to do this in the football world because there are only 10 games. But in the basketball world, if Mary Harden Baylor was number one team in the country and they went to Whitewater and lost by three, there would be some voters that wouldn't knock them out of the top spot. And I would be one of them, probably. Let's be honest. Home field advantage is worth three points, ain't it? Worth three points, three and a half points. I will get Logan Hansen in here. Logan will tweet at us sometime on Monday with that actual answer. This is basically a draw on a neutral field, I think. Very nearly a, a, a draw on on not a neutral field. Number four and number five, maybe, maybe the best two teams. I don't know. It's nice to have five really good teams to talk about, isn't it? Your categories have become tiresome. You've got mail. Tiresome. You know how mailbags work. We primarily look at Twitter, but you could send us an email, really. You could do all sorts of things. We're taking this question on Twitter from Patrick Bone. Patrick, I hope that's how you pronounce your last name. I apologize if it's not, but uh, I know... Um, Patrick and I had the same job like about 10 years apart. Parenting on WHIS or parenting on WHIS? Anyway, he asks, are we going down the same old road with Ithaca again? The one that starts 7-0. and This is, that's the question of an Ithaca grad who's a, has come to expect the worst from his team. It's happened before. I think my gut feeling for Ithaca fans is, you know, one of the things to remember about this year. And yeah, there's this string of eight and three, eight and three, eight and three, eight and two over the last four completed seasons, right? Coaching staff's different. And I think that certainly has something to do with it. I think that's a good start, right? It is. Checking out Ithaca's schedule. It looks to me, they're going to go to Hobart on October 1st. But, you know, we don't know what's what's going on with Hobart, as you mentioned earlier. Ithaca has been... uh They've been right out on the bubble a couple of times with eight and two seasons and really, really strong strengths of schedule. And you can you can understand how fans of of Ithaca get a little bit jaded with the process and the system because you know there have been some other two lost teams that get in. It looks to me like Ithaca has a pretty clear path to seven and zero. Get through the Buffalo State game at ten twenty one, and then they're going to close with RPI at Union, and then they're going to go to the stadium in the Bronx to play Cortland in the Cortica Jug game. You know, we'll see what happens as RPI develops over the course of the season. Union is off to a really good start. Cortland is off to a really good start. So Ithaca, I mean, the the their schedule is back loaded again for sure. They could get to 7-0, and could get to 8-0, and and then you have to see what happens in November. And, you know, if Ithaca can get one of those two games, you got to feel like they're going to get in. Well, if nothing else, Ithaca did a good job of providing a reality check to those Brockport fans who are looking for top 25 votes. After one week, folks, folks, do not start looking for your top 25 votes after one victory. Looking ahead to week three, not week 11. I'm really looking at that Ithaca-Cortland game, but I'm looking ahead to week three with my game to watch. And suddenly this Harden-Simmons game at UW-Platteville, now it's a matchup of two top 25 teams, number six versus number 24. Remember how happy we were when we just found out that Harden Simmons was playing anybody as a Division Three school in a non-conference game. Now you've got a ranked team. This is a fifth quintile. Quintile meaning one-fifth of the poll, five spots. 25 divided by five is five. But 
a ranked team nonetheless and a team in a good conference. This is always going to be a boost for Harden-Simmons' strength of schedule because they get to tap into those sweet, sweet WIAC numbers and the WIAC's having a pretty decent year. But, you know, I'm looking forward to see what that game looks like. Uh, this is a pretty big test for both of these programs. Platteville's gotten its way into the top 25. Harden-Simmons has sat here for quite some time, primarily on the strength of playing Mary Harden-Baylor close, and now is the opportunity for them to go out and actually get a W and secure that spot in the poll. Is my game of the week this week is Grove City at Carnegie Mellon. Grove City, they have started this season on fire offensively. The Wolverines are scoring 59 points per game, and they're gaining nearly 600 yards of offense per game. Grove City, they have been steadily climbing the pack standings for the last few seasons, but they're still really hunting for that breakthrough win that could propel them to a conference championship. They're going to get that chance this week when they travel to Pittsburgh to take on defending pack champions Carnegie Mellon. The Tartans, they have had two very different games so far. Their offense was balanced and proficient in week one against Whitworth, but they really struggled against RPI. The Tartans managed just 161 yards of offense in their 10-7 to win over the Engineers. And that one touchdown drive only had to cover one yard following an interception return. This should be a good game that will start to set the pecking order for pack supremacy. It's time for On the Spot. And it's your turn to go first. I went first last week. All right, this week, Pat, On the Spot, I am bringing back an oldie but a goodie. It's called the Nezcac Stack, Pat. Oh, no. And this is how we play the Nezcac Stack. First of all, we're going to welcome the Nezcac to the 2022 season. This is going to be their first week of games. But I want you to uh, pick winners in all five Nezcac games and then sort them by margin of victory. <laughs> You're going to have fun coming up in just a couple of minutes. Nezcac, the New England Small College Athletic Conference. Uh, schools in Maine and Vermont and a bunch of them in Massachusetts and Connecticut and New York. And these are schools that do not participate in the NCAA playoffs in the Division Three football, for which, I mean, you know, all y'all should be happy because that's one more at the large bid that's available for you guys. And so they only play conference games. They 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 fashion themselves like the Ivy League in uh, in football terms. And I'm uh, saying all that as background for people who are new and also so I have a moment to load the NESCAC schedule page on d3football.com. So let's see. Stack them by margin of victory, huh? These teams haven't played. Don't know a whole lot. Bowden Hamilton, Williams Colby, Bates Wesleyan, Trinity of Connecticut against Tufts, Middlebury against Amherst. This podcast is really going to be long already, so I'm just going to cut all the discussion and go straight to my lifelines. You didn't need those stinking lifelines. <laughs> I'm going to take Wesleyan over Bates as the, uh, the highest margin of victory in this group. All of the others, I feel, are going to be just the same here. I'm going to take Hamilton over Bowden. I'm going to put it fourth in the stack. I'm going to take your Middlebury-Amherst game, and I'm going to say Amherst wins this game, and that's going to be at the bottom of the stack. That's going to be the closest game. I'm going to take Williams over Colby. I don't quite know what to make of these EFs, but I'm going to put this one third in the stack, and then that leaves me with Wesleyan and Bates. Is that why I haven't done Wesleyan and Bates yet? Or have we I done Wesleyan and, and Bates at the top of the stack. Wesleyan and Bates at the top of the stack. Well, Wesleyan over Bates, but that doesn't belong at the top. Wait, the top of the stack is the biggest margin of victory? Is that what I said? Yes, we will go in descending okay. order of victory. Oh, well, then I do like Wesleyan over Bates at the top of the stack. Then My little Nescac stack, a quick trick brick stack for those of you who are into your Fox and socks. Well, you got one more game. What did I miss? Trinity and Tufts? Yes. Trinity over Tufts, and that is going to be the second in the stack. All right. All right, Greg, so uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. And I have five games for you to list in order of margin of victory <laughs> and uh, and picking winners. <laughs> None of these games are in the NESCAC, so that's cool. I've picked uh, for us a fine selection of games from across the country. And they are Albion versus Rose Holman, 
Baldwin Wallace versus John Carroll. Pacific Lutheran against Laverne. Mary Harden Baylor and Southwestern. And Muhlenberg versus Ursinus. You got yourself a Cuyahoga Golden Bowl trophy in there. You got yourself a Battle of I-35. Um, we're not naming rivalry trophies for this, but, uh, you know. All right. So my, uh, I'm going to go, we're going to start with UMHB over Southwestern, and I think that's going to be my largest margin of victory. I do expect the crew to bounce back with a very uh, focused and concerted effort this week against Southwestern. Number two on this list, I'm going to go with Pacific Lutheran over Laverne. I think that's going to be the second highest margin of victory. Next, I'm going to go with Albion over Rose Holman. Um, Albion has blown out two teams in a row. The going is a little bit tougher against Rose Holman, but I think I'm a believer in Albion's offense. Rose Holman, two tough losses for the engineers. We'll see how they bounce back in week three. My fourth game is going to be uh, Muhlenberg versus Ursinus. I'm going to go Muhlenberg over Ursinus. Ursinus gave Hopkins some fits at home this weekend, but I expect the Mules will prevail there. And then I will go with John Carroll over Baldwin Wallace in the Cuyahoga Golden Bowl. And that will be my closest game of the five. And then, of course, we hold ourselves accountable, so we do the spot check. Last week, I asked Greg to predict which of the two games I was attending would be closer. We kind of whiffed on this one, I think, as a collective. I felt the same way you did. You thought Carroll and Wisconsin Lutheran would be closer, and it was 54-7. to <laughs> And then, of course, the uh, Mary Harden-Baylor-Whitewater game was a four-point game. Yeah, big, big Ofer for me on that one last week, Pat, I asked you to pick the results of games involving teams that changed their mascot names since the last division three football season. You had the West West con wolves over Albright, And that is exactly what happened as the wolves won 28 to 14. The Kenyan owls lost to Kalamazoo as you called and the crown polars also lost to Carlton by a score of it. Well, it's, we don't. The score is not important in this case, but Pat, you uh, swept the spot check. Very, very good. It's the kind of score that would get the uh, MIAC presidents to kick Carlton out of the league. Just looking at how we did on quick hits last week, game of the week. I mean, they were both really good uh, games. Everybody picked either Mary Harden Baylor, Whitewater, or Wheaton Trinity. In terms of top twenty-five teams to be upset, uh, I picked RPI. So did Logan Hansen. So did Riley Zayas. Greg, you and Ryan both correctly called Bethel being in the danger zone at uh, Platteville. And then Frank picked St. John's didn't quite come to fruition. Who knows if they'd had a few more minutes of that game as River Falls made it kind of close. Then it was MIAA or NJAC. Yes, and everybody correctly picked the MIAA to win most games there. Everybody correctly picked the MIAA to win most of the games. The hat tip to America's oldest collegiate conference who swept their games on Saturday going perfect 7-0. The NJAC. Uh, not so much. They just went one and six in week two. Most surprising two and O team, Frank Logan and Riley. They each correctly predicted FDU Florham to be two and O. Trine saved Pat's two and O bacon with their furious rally at Rose Holman. George Fox did the deed, moving to two and O with a forty-two to thirty-nine win at Howard Payne. Ryan picked Kenya to move to two and O, but the Owls, as we already know, fell to Kalamazoo. And the most impressive O and one team. Greg correctly predicted SUNY Maritime to bounce back and win the Chowder Bowl on Friday night. Ryan and Frank each picked up wins with Muhlenberg's win over Dickinson. Logan foresaw Westminster overwhelming Bethany. Some low-hanging fruit there for Logan. Seriously. And, Seriously. <laughs> and Riley uh, going out on the on the limb there with Huntingdon's Wesley Cup win after the Hawks fell short to Linfield in week one. Only Pat missed on uh, this one with Maryville. Uh, not quite getting it done at center, falling 20 to 10. Well, I tried to pick something that was a challenge. I mean, Muhlenberg over Dickinson, Westminster over Bethany. Westminster over Bethany. Logan, man, you're the numbers guy. You've got all of that at your fingertips. Pick something more challenging. 
And this was Around the Nation podcast number 310, released on September 12th of 2022. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our coverage throughout the week. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites in general by visiting patreon.com slash d3sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alum of your school about this show or about the d3football.com website. You can also rate and review us in the various places where people rate and review podcasts. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg is at Wally Wabash. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Damara O'Malley. Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Also, I want to thank the the guy who was streaming the game on a Saturday from UW-Whitewater for Mary Harden-Baylor. I, it turned out, I needed an Ethernet cord in order to do anything at Whitewater because when you put 14,000 cell phones in the stand, that guest wireless is no good. So thanks for saving my uh, bacon. Mm, bacon. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host, and of course, thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan. Week three, is that a uh, like a sorbet Saturday? I don't know. So palate cleanser after after week two? Oh, I thought we were going for, you know, like um, the traditional wedding anniversary gifts or something like that. Well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift. New rivalry should, like, follow this. A new trophy, a new gift based on what's traditional. I like that. It should have been a donut trophy made out of paper then, right? It could have been. It could have been a really could have been a poppy seed bagel. The trophy does look a little bagelish. I'm not gonna lie, but I still I love the idea of the golden blazer. You need to have like those like full size jimmies or sprinkles, whatever you want to call them. If you go back and think about the postseason bowl games that we invented uh, back in I don't know podcast number 308 or something like that 307. It really was like, this should be right up the alley. I don't know that it's what I would have picked out from Quick Trip. It's not what I go to Quick Trip for. So Quick Trip is like the sheets or the Wawa of the upper Midwest. For those of you who have those cultural references. And for me, I would have wanted the pumpkin bars with the cream cheese frosting. Those are my favorite guilty pleasure when I stop at a Quick Trip. Oh, that pumpkin bar sounds delicious. Not gonna lie. Who, who else is in the area that needs a rivalry game? Um, who doesn't? And Pat, don't edit out a whole bunch so that you can be right. <laughs>